Welcome to this week's episode of our Thirsty Podcast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling. And I'm Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. Today we are ending the season of Epiphany. Our uh, our theme this season has been from the river to the mountain. So we've been looking at Jesus in the river, being baptized. Now he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. We are going to see him with a glimpse of his true glory. Uh, the prayer of the day sets this off pretty well. O God, in the glorious transfiguration of your only begotten Son, you confirm the mysteries of the faith by the testimony of Moses and Elijah. And in the voice that came from the bright cloud, you foreshadowed our adoption as your sons. In your mercy, make us co-heirs of glory with Jesus our King and bring us at last to heaven. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we'll get into the gospel lesson from Mark chapter 9. So Mark 9, starting with verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were alone by themselves. There he was transfigured in front of them. His clothes became radiant, dazzling white, whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. And Elijah appeared to them together with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were terrified. A cloud appeared and overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So you've got your Bible open there, Nathan. So Mark begins this section by saying, after six days. So what was six days prior to this? That's a great question that you're throwing at me when I didn't get a chance to look at this ahead of time. Yeah, so I, I was talking to Nathan about uh, about this text that I'm going to be preaching on this text, so this would be... 27 years that I have preached for transfiguration. I've hit a lot of different angles. And the way I'm going to approach this sermon that I'll write today and tomorrow morning is focusing on that after six days because what is prior to this is Jesus has been with his disciples in the north and uh, Peter has given his testimony that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and uh, he has also rebuked Jesus because Jesus has been talking about how he will suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders. And Jesus goes on to talk about the persecution that the disciples are going to face. So I'm going to talk about that, of why these disciples, they're going to need this glimpse of glory as, they, as they're suffering persecution. Is that what you found too in your six, after six days? I think so. That sounds right. Just okay. kind of looking through. Yeah. And then Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. And I find that interesting because these are the same three disciples he takes with him when he goes to raise the daughter of Jairus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, I was going to say the same three disciples that are, are with him in the Garden. Um, there does seem to be a special relationship between Jesus and these three disciples. I mean, we also hear later on that John was the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, so there does seem to be a special relationship there. Yeah. Uh, poor Andrew. 
He's like one of the first disciples, brings Peter, and then Jesus hangs out with Peter more than Andrew. Well, and then too, I mean, James is always included in this group, but we really don't hear much from James. And if I remember, I think he's one of the first disciples to be martyred too. Yeah. Uh, But let him up onto a high mountain. And uh, some will say, according to tradition, that it was Mount Tabor in the Jezreel Valley near Nazareth. Seems more likely, though, that he is up in the in the north in the range of Mount Hermon, near Caesarea Philippi, which is uh, which may, would make sense because of what I was referencing earlier about after the six days, uh, six days prior to this, Jesus is with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, and that's when Peter makes his confession of faith, and then also is rebuked by Jesus. And if I remember too, I believe Mount Hermon is one of the the highest, I think it is the highest point in the kind of Holy Land area. And it's usually the one that still has snow on it most of the year, if I remember too. Yeah. We definitely don't have snow around here. No, we don't. I think I I have one little pile by the front of my driveway where I had heaped up a large amount of snow when it had snowed last. No, it was, um, yesterday was my birthday and it is one of the first times I remember it being almost 60 degrees on my birthday. I remember it being 30 below on my birthday and there being a ton of snow, but never being warm enough. I grilled last night again because it was warm enough to grill. Yeah. So there, uh, Jesus was transfigured in front of them. So there is the Greek word, uh, metamorphosis, uh, it's a change that we would have seen Jesus in his humility, being born of a virgin, and then uh, he's really covering up his divinity all these years. And now he's taken that uh, humanity off for a, for a few moments so that people can see his uh, total divinity. And that Greek word metamorphosis, is the same one we use then for like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. So usually when children's devotion, that's what I usually talk about. I'll go and pull out uh, Eric Carl's uh, The Hungry Caterpillar. He eats a lot in that book. He does, especially the last day just before, yep. he, just before he is transfigured. He goes through <laughs> his metamorphosis. Uh, his clothes became radiant, dazzling white, whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. And it's interesting how the different apostles describe it differently. Luke has one description, like it's like like lightning, and Matthew describes it differently. And then Elijah appeared with them, and also Moses. Uh, why those two guys? Well, we are talking about two of the main figures of the Old Testament. Moses, the lawgiver, um, revered for talking about his his work with leading the people out of Egypt, and then also Elijah, perhaps one of the greatest of the prophets, the one who challenged the prophets of Baal, who was there. And then two, there are interesting there are interesting comparisons between those figures, Elijah and Elisha, and then the ministry of John and Jesus that are there. Um, but we kind of see two two pillars of the Old Testament that are there. Um, conversing with Jesus. And then Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven. Oh, yeah, that's true. He, you know, he never died. He was taken up into heaven with the fiery chariot. That's the Old Testament lesson 
for this Sunday. And while Moses did die, he alone was a man who was buried by the hand of God. Yeah. And I forget what where it is in scripture where it's a weird text of, you know, the devil coming and vying for his body for Moses' well, that's body. Well, that's in that's in Jude, yeah. and I believe that's that is referencing the apocryphal book of Enoch. Yeah, if I remember, not apocryphal, pseudepigraphal, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you've got these two, like you said, pillars of the Old Testament, uh, pictures of the law that are there, and. Uh, what are they talking about? Mark doesn't say what they were talking about, but I think it's Luke that references that they're talking about Jesus' exodus. And so, again, I've preached on that uh, that idea of uh, talking about how Moses knows very well about an exodus you know, because he led the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt and then uh, Elijah just leading the people out of the the idolatry of Baal and Asherah. And then you've got uh, Jesus is going to be talking about his exodus of leaving this world. And then, you know, because he's only a short time away from his crucifixion and death. And then Peter said, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So there's another sermon theme you can go with. You know, it's good for us to be here. What was your hymn devotion on? Uh, down from the Mount of Glory. Okay, down from, yeah. Uh, just, just curious, we'll talk about that in a little bit. I haven't listened to it yet, but, uh, you know, it's good for us to be here. That's one of the hymns in our hymnal that we would sing on Transfiguration Sunday. Yeah, and it's good for us to be here in application and say, yeah, it's good for us to be here where Jesus is in his, in his uh, house of worship. One of the things that has always frustrated me, and I haven't heard it as much recently, but I remember for a long time people would often criticize Peter for his comment here that he was, I don't know if you would run across that as well. And I've never taken it, like, people have tried to, like, say, well, Peter was saying they didn't want to go back, they just wanted to stay up there forever. And I've never really gotten that impression. I've gotten more of the impression, and even Mark says here, like, Peter didn't know what he was saying because they were so so terrified that it wasn't this desire to get away and stay there forever. It was more that this is good. We want to enjoy this. Um, And that's just something that I've observed over the years. Yeah, and again, thinking of the different sermons I've written on this, I focused on the three tents. Uh, Tent, their tabernacle, that Jesus is tabernacling among us. You know, he, his permanent place is in heaven, but he comes and does not have his permanent home uh, here on earth. But he is here with us, just like Moses and the Israelites, they would have tabernacles, tents, for uh, traveling for 40 years in the wilderness. And then they had the, before the temple was built, which is a permanent place, then they had their place of worship, which was uh, something that was moving. It was a tent. It was a tabernacle. And so uh, I've also then focused on uh, how Jesus comes and tabernacles among us in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And then I've explained in that sermon about how Jesus comes in body and blood, uh, 
carried by the bread and wine. And then even the whole idea of why we put the cover on the communion set of the white uh, the white cloth, and then we cover it back up again and so forth. So something mysterious. Some of the other connections in here that I like is this idea that, you know, Jesus became radiant, dazzling white. Uh, it's the same ter- the same way John describes Jesus in his vision of Revelation. And then it's the same way that Daniel talks about the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 when he talks about the Son of Man, which is the name that Jesus uses for himself often, and we see him use it about himself here in 9. That idea of the whiteness, the pureness, the holiness, that radiancy that we struggle even to describe, and that, like the disciples, if we were in the presence of God as sinful humans, we couldn't help but be terrified. And then, too, you think of Moses and how Moses, when he was in the presence of God, would come out, and even the reflected glory of God that would show in his face, the people of Israel didn't even want, they were terrified even of the reflected glory of God, which emphasizes the absolute holiness of our Lord. And you know, Peter says, we'll make three tents for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Another another note I found about Moses and Elijah is showing that this is not a new religion that Jesus is establishing. This is something that is very ancient, goes back to Elijah, and then goes back all the way to Moses. And then a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. And something, this is the first time I've uh, noticed this in studying it, is that that Greek word for overshadowing is the same one that uh, Luke uses to describe the conception of the Christ child in Luke 1.35, that the the Holy One will overshadow you. Uh, I don't know, did you find anything with that that verse or that verb? No, I did not. I just, you had mentioned that the other day, and that's interesting, that idea of, God overshadowing us with his presence. I know you had said you were looking in the Septuagint a little bit, and I guess I would be curious to see if that's something that talks about how, like, the wings of the cherubim overshadowed the tabern or the, the atonement seat. Yeah, so Luke 1, verse 35, the angel answers Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You know, just that whole concept then of... Excuse me. Of uh, something very special here uh, with this conception of Christ. Yeah, and then I'll uh, look up Exodus 40, verse 35. So, you want to explain what the Septuagint is? So, the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament uh, that was, um, well, the legend is that 70 Jewish scribes went into a into a room, and I think it was over a period of 70 days, came out with a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, and it all matched. That's not what happened. Oh. It was a, a translation that was done over a period of years. Um, when you do studies in the Septuagint, you can see that there were, there were different scribes that translated different parts, um, but it is the Greek version of the Old Hebrew of the Old Testament that was in Hebrew, uh, it seems like it was the version that Jesus often quoted many of the New Testament quotations um, 
in Scripture are taken from the Septuagint, except interestingly enough, one of the things I learned was that Matthew seems to do his own translations of the Hebrew, and so does Paul. Paul seems to go back and forth between quoting the Septuagint and quote and doing his own translation of the Hebrew. Yeah, so the Septuagint from Exodus 40, verse 35. Well, I'll read from the English, though. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud stayed over it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tent. And that uh, that filled in the English would be that word overshadowed in the Septuagint, in the Greek of that. So just uh, kind of interesting. I haven't delved too much into that whole concept of overshadowing because the different commentaries... Well, they didn't reference it either. I just found it somewhere. Oh, that's that's kind of interesting. I'm going to bring that up. Uh, but another way to go with this sermon is a voice comes from that cloud that is overshadowing them, and God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So again, if we're going with that theme of from the river to the mountain, at the river, G- God the Father says almost the same thing. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And now three years later, he says the same thing. And then I've referenced this in a past sermon too of how how God is not so much talking at the cross, but he's there obviously with the darkness and so forth. Uh, And then you have... Well, in, in the end of Mark's gospel, you don't have God speaking, but you do have uh, the centurion that sees Jesus after he's died on the cross that uh, surely this man was the Son of God. So you kind of see those those bookends there. Yeah, and that's one of the, going through my first season of Epiphany um, and working in it, it, it is interesting how we, we start with the baptism of our Lord at the beginning of Epiphany, and we end with the Transfiguration. And really, in a relatively short a time, we compress the entire three-year ministry of Jesus because now from Transfiguration, we're going into the end of Jesus' ministry as we focus on the season of of Lent and of Holy Week. Um, and then through the rest of the church year, we kind of go back and then take a more slow walk in the non-festival half of the church year through the ministry of Jesus as it applies to our our lives as Christians. Yeah. And then like I said earlier, you know, we need these glimpses of glory like the disciples did. Because we can't stay and live on the mountaintop. Uh, we can't just stay in the church. We need to go out into the plain, go out into the world, into the valley of death, into the plain of despair. And that's where what Jesus says six days earlier about the disciples being persecuted, uh, that's where I'm going to be focusing my sermon on is now we're down in this valley, we're down in the plain, and we need to keep remembering this vision of glory of Jesus as we're facing persecution like every one of the disciples did. When you think about the intense time of testing and sifting, that the disciples were going to be shortly be going through with the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus, that he did this to give them that assurance going forward. Um, when I wrote on the hymn for this week, I kind of talked, too, about how this gives us a broader assurance, too, that we see this glimpse of Jesus' divine nature, that Jesus is true God, and that as we think about the events of Holy Week, 
we think, too, how our Lord could have at any moment stopped what was going on and yet in love continued to do it. I always think about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he also gives that brief glimpse of his power when he just very briefly says, I am he, and blows back all of those who are attempting to arrest him. He's demonstrating, you're only arresting me because I'm allowing this to happen. And again, that love and compassion of our Savior, that he allowed himself to be humiliated, to be tortured, and to be crucified for us. And then as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So why is that? Well, again, as we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus's fame had been spreading. But unfortunately, it was the wrong emphasis. People weren't interested in his message. They were interested in the miracles, Uh, especially after the feeding of, I think it's the feeding of the 5,000 in John. The people want a bread king. They want Jesus who's going to provide for their material needs, and they're not so much concerned with the spiritual needs. And Jesus knows here, too, it seems if word of this gets out that his glory had been revealed, that then people are going to come flock to him. Um, And then, too, it's going to be harder for him to fulfill what his mission was, which was to suffer and die for the sins of the world. Anything else on the gospel lesson? No, I don't think so. Other than the transfiguration is always just such a such an amazing story because we see glimpses of Jesus' power and his miracles and driving out demons and raising the dead. Um, but there have been other people, prophets, the apostles, who have also done miracles. But it's only Jesus here that reveals this glory that is God's alone that you see the same reaction the disciples have from all the other people in Scripture, when they see the revelation of God's glory, that they cannot help but react with fear and awe of the the creature standing in the presence of the Creator. Yeah, and uh, we have this transfiguration that is uh, that transition point, like Nathan said before, of going from the Epiphany season to three days later, with the beginning of Lent with Ash Wednesday. So get into... The second reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. So, but every, even in our, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled among those who are perishing. In the case of those people, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from clearly seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is God's image. Indeed, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For the God who said, light will shine out with darkness. And what is it? Oh, I skipped a page there. Yeah, for God who said, let light, light will shine out of darkness is the same one who made light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's the correct verse. Yeah, I just came in for the save there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so uh, Paul says, even if our gospel it is veiled, and there, when I was saying this, I was thinking, all right, so I have some bad cataracts that have developed over my eyes the last few years. I'm going to go next week and uh, look at, uh, we're going to be talking to a surgeon about having the cataracts removed. Well, that veiled, you know, I can't see things as clearly uh, because of that. But uh, here's that idea, too, is 
people that are perishing, those who are unbelievers, they cannot see clearly the treasures of the gospel. And I think in verse the verse four that the God of this age has blinded the mm-hmm. minds. We see that there are so many things that are obstacles to people believing in Jesus. There's so many things that Satan uses. He has such a large toolbox of temptations of people who put their priorities before God that blinds them to the glory of the gospel. And again, Paul talks in other places kind of with the idea of being veiled, but that the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who don't have faith. This idea that, well, what do you mean? And I've I've had conversations with people like, what, what what do you mean that I don't have to do anything to be saved? You, God gives this to me as a gift. That's counterintuitive to the way we think. I mean, we have expressions like there's no such thing as a free lunch. We're always suspicious of things that seem too good to be true. And the gospel is a wonderful thing that is too good to be true, that God himself suffered and died for us and gives that to us as a gift through faith. Well, that can't be all there is. There has to be something else that I have to do. So Paul talks about the uh, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So uh, in catechism class on Tuesday with the seventh graders, we were we were studying the first commandment, and we talked about. I gave them a bunch of uh, titles that I want them to remember as extra credit for the quiz, and I said, "There's unbelievers." Uh, atheists, agnostics, uh, pagans, and heathens. And just, you know, here's the definition of them. You know, some of them, they're describing the same people, but, uh, you know, those are just different terms of those people who have been blinded. And I'm working on uh, coming up with ideas for my second book, so a sequel to Resisting the Dragon's Beast. And what I'm thinking of, Nathan, is something on no compromise. And as I was thinking about that, of no compromise from Revelation chapter 18, my previous book was on Revelation 13, of the beast out of the sea, the persecuting government. But this one, I think I might talk about Revelation 18, which talks about the 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 prostitute uh, who is Babylon, who is riding on the beast out of the sea, the persecuting government. So you have the false religions of the world and the persecuting government that are working in unison to pull people away from Christianity. But we can't compromise to either one. So I was going to ask you, you can help me with uh, some of the chapters for this book, Nathan. So how do oh, we... S- oh, goodness. See, this is not good. You're, you're the idea person. Yeah. I, I'm, the, I'm the facts person. You're, well, I'll, I'll help you out here. So what are some, some ways that we see this God of this age? You know, I'll start, start us out is one I thought of was, you know, the cult of climate change. You know, that we have these, these people that believe that the climate is, is like a god or a goddess. And you hear them talking about Mother Earth, Gaia, and then it's also, it's become like a worship for them. So what's, what would be another idea? Well, I was talking with, I covered the seventh grade catechism class yesterday morning um, and was teaching the second part of the lesson that they had on Tuesday with Pastor Zarling um, and briefly touched on the occult Mm. and talked to them too about how so many people in our society have rejected Christianity. 
It's a made-up religion. They just they can't accept it. But humans seem to be built with an innate need to look for spirituality, to look for something outside of themselves. And when they say, well, it can't be the God of Scripture, they have to go somewhere else. And so, yeah, we're seeing a resurgence in paganism. Uh, we're seeing a resurgence in um, it's kind of just this vague spirituality. Um, I had kind of grown up, growing up in the 80s, you know, if I remember, and you are, you know, significantly older than I am. So, like, crystals were a huge yeah. thing in the 70s. But now they're making a resurgence again, and it's kind of being coupled with this idea of health. But again, it's this, I'm looking for power outside of myself, and I don't want to go to God because that's just ridiculous. But if I look at these other places for power, I'm going to try to find it there. And if I'm going to put a piece of amethyst around my neck and think that that's somehow going to balance my chi, or I don't even know what the yeah. the beliefs are, I'm going to have faith in that because I've decided ahead of time I can't believe in Scripture. Yeah, and one of the things I did with the <clears throat> the catechism students on Tuesday was I said, if you want to know about the different religions of the world, just watch Disney movies. And there are Disney fans. And so we talked about if you want to know about you know the worship of nature, you know look at Pocahontas, you know look at uh, all the Greek and Roman gods. Watch Hercules. If you want to know about ancestor worship among the Chinese, watch Mulan. If you want to know about the worship of the occult, then watch the Princess and the Frog. And the thing is, especially with that one, it's a very catchy song that they have the. Uh, well, the occultist singing. You know, it's it's a cool song, and it just draws people in. Another one I thought of was just the cult of personality. Uh, that that cult of personality, especially we've seen it the last decade or so with uh, transgenderism. And it's all about me and my feelings, and don't impose any of your feelings on me, and yet I can impose my will on you. I think coupled with that, too, um, I know you and I had noticed this year, and a number of other people had noticed too, that like Christmas this year, the, the Church of Satan is really mm. making a big push into the mainstream of culture. And I think we, we need to distinguish here that there's the, that the Satanic Temple mm -hmm. is a group that actually worships Satan, whereas the Church of Satan doesn't actually believe in Satan, but it's a cult of self. It's a worship of self. And the entire idea is if there's something out there that makes you happy, you make that your God. You go out and find it. If, you're, if money is your God, then you do everything possible to get as much money as possible. If happiness is your God, you go out and do everything. And it, it's a complete denial of others and a complete focus on self. And it's something that is appealing to a lot of people. And then we talked about this one in Bible study this morning because we're going through my book, is <clears throat> the cult of the government, uh, that the government can fix all of our ills. And we think of all the money that they're going to give us because we're unwed mothers with kids at home because uh, we didn't touch, touch on this one, but... Uh, you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, those kinds of things, and we rely on the government. I use the example of, you know, in today's age, if you have an issue with your neighbor, you don't go over to their house. You go and you talk to the police, you talk to the village president or whomever, and you 
you f- try and solve all the the ills of the world with the government. And we we get sucked into that too as Christians, but that's exactly what Revelation chapter 13 and then later Revelation 18 are talking about is uh, the government is pulling us away from trusting God and then we trust in the government to fix everything. I think another thing you point at, you can point at too, if you're talking about the idea of compromising you just look at some of the decisions that have come out of major church bodies in the last mm-hmm. few years of compromising. Well, because you can't expect us to actually teach what the Bible teaches. People don't like hearing about that. People don't like hearing how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only path to heaven is through is through Christ. I know I had written a paper a couple years ago highlighting the Catholic Church's teaching um, that has come out. I'm trying to remember when it came out. Um, But there have been statements that have been made that if you're a good Buddhist, as long as you're doing the best that you can as a Buddhist, you'll be saved. If you're doing the best you can as a Muslim, you'll be saved. The only ones that aren't saved are are Lutherans, because we're still (laughs) condemned from the Council of Trent. Um, But everyone else can get into heaven as long as you're doing all that you can. It's that compromising, because, well, it's mean to tell people the truth of God's word. We see this with a lot of mainstream church bodies with, you know, disregarding God's um, God's views on homosexuality, of the role of men and women, of God's or God, how God arranged creation, how they've been compromising on those. And what we've seen so often is if you compromise on one area of Scripture, you're going to start compromising on other areas of Scripture. I just went through this in our apologetics class starting with creation, how so many churches bought into the evolutionary viewpoint, well, then that translates over to Scripture. Well, then soon, I know a lot of people have been talking, because I think it's the 50th anniversary of the uh, Seminex walkout in the Missouri Synod, where there was a professor that said, we can't believe that we actually have God's Word, because if you eliminate one part of God's Word and say it's not true, well, then you can just start cutting and picking and choosing, and pretty soon you don't have a Bible anymore. Yeah, and two other things, and we'll move on, is you, know, you talked about vague spirituality. So a big fancy term for that is moral therapeutic deism. And you see that in our culture. You see that in our churches, like you're mentioning. Uh, I even had someone in class recently, a, a new new person in adult confirmation. I asked, well, what does God do with our sins? And she said, well, just looks at looks overlooks them you know that's that's the god of this age and we talked about how yeah god is loving but he's also just and a moral therapeutic deism you just feel good about god uh, and his morality what that what people are saying is well god is love he would never tell me not to do something because that will make me feel bad well they're forgetting that god is just and then another one uh that I, oh no, I just lost it because, because I'm old. Because you said I was old. <laughs> well, me me saying, I mean, I didn't speak that truth into existence. That truth <laughs> was already true. So, uh, all right. Well, maybe it'll come back to me. <laughs> uh, so it has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from clearly seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Oh, I know what I was going to talk about. You and I mentioned this yesterday, that as a church body, we in the Wisconsin, we're still talking about 
you know, the roles of men and women. And that's fine. But a lot of that's been decided decades ago. And so while we're still talking about coming out with a uh, something in writing on the roles of men and women, culture has moved way past that. They don't even know what a man or a woman is. Uh, there was a story just came out yesterday about how you've got uh, 12 young ladies on a volleyball uh, squad playing against each other, and five of those were men dressing up and pretending to be women. Three on one side that ended up winning and two on the other side. And they kept those five dudes never got off the volleyball court. The real women, they, they, they had to be subbed in and so forth. It's very much like uh, in the articles I read. It's like this was just a movie recently, which is the Daily Wire's uh, Lady Ballers, where the whole pr- premise of it is these guys that are washed up uh, after they've won the state basketball tournament. Now, years later, they go and they play in a basketball tournament where they all dress up as women and they are able to win until they come up against another team that they're bigger, stronger guys, and then they uh, they pretend they're women. And But that's, the, that's part of this cult too and that uh, the god of this age, the devil, has allowed people to have their eyes veiled so that they don't see the truth of Genesis, that God made them male and female. And while not talked about here, I think one of the things to keep in mind that Paul mentions in Romans 1, here in Second Corinthians he's talking about the God of this age has blinded the minds. But there does come a point, like Paul says in Romans 1, that God himself judges people and blinds them uh, we see that with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus, but Paul also talks about how eventually, if a people continually reject God and his word, God will hand them over to their own sinful desires. Yep. Yeah, and then, uh, so it's important for us to understand that this is, the God of this age is doing this. This is not the fault of God. Uh, it's the God of this age that's doing this. And yet... Uh, Paul says, to keep them from clearly seeing what? From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is God's image. And there, the glory of Christ, that's why this text was chosen to be the epistle lesson for transfiguration, because we see the glory of Christ. And then, a great comfort for us as preachers, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And this is something... You know, for for pastors too, you know, I know there there are pastors who like to use a lot of their own life stories in sermons, and there's a place for that. Uh, I'll I'll do that too. But the key is we're not preaching ourselves. We might use ourselves as an illustration, but we're preaching Jesus Christ. And who are we, Nathan? We are just servants, servants. And it's the next verse after the reading for today. Uh, which is verse seven, seven, jars of clay, that it's not it's not us, it's the message we're we're proclaiming, and I know that's one of the one of the things I pray before I step into the pulpit every time that I don't get in the way of the message that the gospel of Christ is what's emphasized, that's what shines through, because by my own my own reasoning, by my own persuasive speaking, I am not going to convince anyone into heaven. It's only the power of the gospel. It's only the power of God's word that can change hearts. And it's that which allows 
all pastors to be able to step into the pulpit, that it's not our words that are going to convince people of the truth. It's God speaking through us. It's his word that is going to convince. And that's always where our emphasis is, on his word. Yeah, and it's uh, that light shining out of darkness. One of the things that uh, has been happening here at our congregation, uh, last year we had uh, eight adults confirmed and then uh, nine children baptized and two adults baptized. And then I had said in the sermon where with Nathaniel and Andrew, Jesus says, oh, you're going to see even greater things than that. And I talked to our congregation saying, hey, we saw some pretty great things this year, but we pray we'll see even greater things than that. And then what happened this past Sunday, we had the baptism of one of our third graders in our grade school, the baptism of one of our uh, freshmen at Shoreland from China, and then that young man was confirmed along with six other adults. And then uh, we've had a bunch of other child and adult baptisms. So by the time we get to the end of February, we'll, we will have had seven baptisms in eight Sundays. You know, we were, we were joking that we're kind of running out of water. But <laughs> It's a good thing we're by a lake. Yeah, there you go. You know, how, how is this happening? And people ask me, what are you doing? So I'm not doing anything. But this is a good text to say what we're doing is for whatever reason, God at this point in all of these people's lives, because they're all coming from different viewpoints, some are brand new to the school, some that it's their boyfriend uh, or girlfriend that's a member of the church, and now they're being brought into the church through them. Others that they were confirmed to this church 20, 30 years ago, and now God has woken them up, uh, brought them back into the church. Or, to use this imagery, he's taking the veil off of their eyes so that they can see the light of Jesus Christ shining in the darkness. This is one of the things I, I love about our synod, is that when we train our pastors, this is the emphasis. I don't remember where it was in the old chapel when you were there, but now in the new chapel above it is that Keruxeta Toi Hoyan preach the gospel. And that's what we're we're trained to do. We're not trained in tactics on how to to be effective in growing our churches. We go out, we preach the gospel. And it's God working through that gospel that changes people's hearts. <clears throat> and then it wraps up by saying that that light shining in the darkness is the same one who made light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So there, uh, Paul very easily could have said, uh, by inspiration of the Spirit, who made the light shine in my heart, you know, that light that shone from heaven, who is Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, calling from heaven, saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. He literally shone the light so brightly into uh, Paul's, well, Saul's eyes so that he blinded him. Yeah, he ended up with cataracts. Yeah, exactly. Is that what happened to you? Were you persecuting the church? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, but he says, our eyes, so plural, uh, his eyes as well as those of the Corinthians, so that now they are, by God's grace, they are seeing the light of Christ. And that's just something that all of us had, even if, you know, 
we were all born in that state of spiritual darkness, and maybe we had the privilege of being baptized when we were infants and growing up in a Christian home, and we don't remember when we were in that spiritual darkness, but that's the state we were all in. It was only through the light of the gospel that we are now able to see the glory of Christ. Anything else on this text? No, other than I I really do love that picture of I am just a clay jar. It's not me. It's the message that I'm proclaiming. Yeah, I always talk about being cracked pots. Yeah, that's, yes, that works on a number of levels. Yes. We'll wrap it up here. So this is Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from Water of Life Lutheran Church. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life.